We'll read this morning from Matthew chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 18. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. All month long we are focusing and considering the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Now in our text this morning, we come to the record of his birth. Now remember that this baby that is born in Bethlehem to this young woman, Mary, uh, is a man, fully human in his nature, but without sin. And we're going to talk about that this morning and how that happened and why it's important. But, but this humanity, this tiny baby that is born is fully human, but united to the divine nature of the person of the Son. So this baby is a baby, like any other baby, but without sin, but united to the God that Isaiah had a vision of that the angels declared to be holy, holy, holy. Nothing like this has happened in the history of the world before or since. That a baby is born whose humanity is united to the God who is holy, holy, holy. This is God coming in the flesh to dwell or to to tabernacle, to live among his people, among his creatures. It's an amazing miracle. And so how how did this happen? Why did he do this? And that's what we're going to be discussing this morning, that the nature of his birth and the purpose of his birth. Now, Scripture makes a point in this passage of his parentage. Uh, Matthew gives us a genealogy uh, tying uh, his birth back to David the king, he specifies, back to Abraham the patriarch. But he makes a point 
of the parentage of this baby. He says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph. And before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So it makes a point of saying that Mary is his mother, but it doesn't say that Joseph is his father. Instead, it says that she is found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. So Mary is his mother according to the flesh, but Joseph isn't his father according to the flesh. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. It's like an engagement. It's very serious. It's like the first step uh, of marriage. You'll notice that they are betrothed, but in verse 19, it calls Joseph her husband. Uh, It speaks of his desire to put her away, that is to divorce her. Uh, In verse 20, it calls Mary his wife. In verse 24, it says that Joseph obeyed the word of the Lord and took to him his wife, so they're betrothed, they're, they're pledged to one another in marriage, uh, but the marriage doesn't seem to have been finalized uh, at this point, and it's discovered that Mary is pregnant. Verse 18 clearly tells us that they had not been together as husband and wife. Verse 24 tells us that Joseph went through with the marriage as the Lord had commanded. It says, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, verse 25, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. He called his name Jesus. So they're married, but they've refrained from marital relations until after she gives birth. And so you can see uh, right here, When we come to the birth of Christ and we come to the Virgin Mary, Roman Catholicism has some teachings on the person of Mary, the mother of Christ, that are just unbiblical. They believe that she was perpetually a virgin, but Scripture tells us that they were husband and wife and that after Christ was born that they were together as husband and wife. Later in the Gospels, we see that Jesus had siblings, half-brothers and sisters. So the perpetual virginity of Mary is a work of fantasy on the part of Roman Catholicism. It's not biblical and it's unnecessary. See, the only reason for such a teaching is to elevate Mary beyond what the Scriptures actually say of her. She is blessed among women. She's highly favored of the Lord. But Roman Catholicism elevates her to a status far beyond that, claiming that she is a co-mediator with Christ in our salvation. Scripture clearly says that's not the case. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Mary is the mother of his human nature, highly favored and honored by God, blessed among women, but she is not perpetually a virgin. She was not immaculately conceived without sin. She was not assumed into heaven without tasting death. And she is not a co-mediator of our salvation with Christ. That is all fan fiction, if you will, developed by Roman Catholicism. And it it actually dishonors Mary and her, her role in the story of redemption. And it greatly dishonors Christ, who is the mediator between God and men. From his mother Mary, Christ received a fully human nature. 
but not from Joseph, not from his father. The text is explicit. She is found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. This phrase is repeated in verses 18 and in verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is significant for two reasons. First, we see that he had a human nature. He's fully man. He was conceived. Mary carried the baby to term. She gave birth to an infant. Christ didn't just appear as a full-grown man. This is important because Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." See, Christ had to be made like us in all things. He couldn't just appear as a 30-year-old man. He had to be fully human, with a fully human experience, a fully human life. If he was to take our place as a substitute on the cross, he, he couldn't just skip what it means to be human. He had to be born as an infant, grow, suffer temptation and hunger and sleepiness and all of those things that are associated with human life. Without that, he would not have been truly human. Therefore, he would not have been a suitable substitute in the place of humans. So his birth had to be real. It had to be that he was born as an actual human baby. That's the first reason that the manner of his conception is important, that he gets a fully human nature from his mother. At the same time, it had to be distinct because he had to be sinless. This is the second reason that the manner of his conception is so important. In order to be an acceptable sacrifice, he had to be perfect. If he had sin, how, he wouldn't have been able to be a sacrifice for the sins of others. To resist temptation throughout a human life to resist sin, this human nature was united to the divine nature of holy God. An imperfect, sinful human nature could not be united to the holy God. He had to be fully human but without sin, and the virgin conception was necessary for this to happen. His human nature came from Mary, but it's not by ordinary generation, not it didn't happen in the normal way, right? Human procreation did not bring about his conception. Instead, the Holy Spirit of God worked miraculously to cause this conception in the young woman. And this did two things. First, it fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that a virgin would give birth. Second, it preserved the perfection of his humanity. Scripture clearly teaches that Adam was responsible for sin. Eve was deceived first. She ate the fruit before Adam and then gave it to her husband, but Adam was responsible. He was the head. He was the federal head of all humanity. And so it was in Adam that sin was imputed to the rest of mankind. 
Romans chapter 5, verses 12, 18, and 19. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. See, Scripture teaches this idea of of headship. Adam is standing as the federal head of all humanity. And what that means is that we were present with Adam, in Adam, when he sinned. And therefore, we're guilty of his sin. In the book of Hebrews, speaking of the priesthood, the author of Hebrews speaks of the Levitical priesthood, the, the priesthood that worked in the t- tabernacle and the temple there in Jerusalem. And, and it, that priesthood is descended through the line of Abraham. But Abraham, at one point, paid tithes to a priest by the name of Melchizedek, who was not descended from his family line. And so Hebrews tells us this. It says, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So the Levitical priesthood who received tithes from the worshipers in Jerusalem had actually paid tithes to another priesthood because they were in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid those tithes. And our sin nature works the same way. We were present in Adam's loins when he sinned, and so we sinned with him. This is called original sin. This means that we are conceived with a sin nature inherited from Adam, and we sin because we're sinners. But Christ was not conceived in this normal way. Yes, Mary was descended from Adam, the same as the rest of us, and she had a sin nature, the same as the rest of us. But Christ was conceived in her womb of the Holy Spirit. And so while he obtained a fully human nature from his mother, it was without sin, not being conceived by ordinary generation, but by special, miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. Without sin. His humanity is true, but unblemished. He didn't inherit a sin nature from Adam. He was preserved against committing sin by means of his union, uh, the union of his divine nature to the human nature. And so this virgin conception and virgin birth is important because it means that not only was he fully human, but that he was sinless and perfect. His humanity wasn't something other than human. It wasn't more than human. It wasn't divine. He wasn't a demigod. It was a human nature, a human body. But it was united to the divine Son of God. His humanity was like the humanity that Adam possessed before he sinned. It was fully human, but righteous, unfallen, sinless, which means it's a humanity that is acceptable as a sacrifice in the place of sinful humans. And this is gloriously good news. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus was fully human but without sin, and therefore he was an acceptable sacrifice to atone for the sins 
of others. The virgin conception and birth of Christ are absolutely necessary to the gospel. It makes substitutionary atonement possible. You can't remove the virgin conception and birth and still have salvation. This is why it's included in all of the creeds and confessions of the church. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, our own confession of faith, they all speak of the virgin conception and birth of Christ as necessary to his work of redemption and to our salvation. Verse 23 in our text, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This is virgin conception and birth that makes him God with us and not just another man. This is necessary to Christianity, necessary to our salvation. So the Athanasian Creed says, line 28, He therefore that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. It is necessary to everlasting salvation that he believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Necessary to salvation that you believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds and made of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking the manhood into God. One altogether, not by the confusion of substance, but by the unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. You, you can't be saved and deny the incarnation. You can't be saved and deny the humanity of Christ, the virgin conception and birth to deny it would be to deny his perfect manhood, and therefore to deny his fitness to be an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of others. This is why Arianism was such a big deal and declared to be a heresy at the Council of Nicaea. To deny the humanity of Christ is to deny salvation. This is why Mormonism is a heretical cult and not true Christianity because they deny the virgin conception. They believe that God the Father has a physical body and actually had physical relations with Mary, and that's how she became pregnant. That's a flat denial of the work of the Holy Spirit and of the words of Scripture. Atheists, of course, deny the virgin conception and birth of Christ on the grounds of denying all miracles. They then turn around and claim a virgin birth for the universe in general. They're hypocrites. You choose your miracle. You can either have a virgin birth of the universe without a miracle-working God, or you can have the virgin birth of the Savior by the Spirit of the living God. I'll choose to believe in a miracle-working God rather than nothingness. 
Christ is the fulfillment of this promise of Emmanuel, God with us, as our Savior, conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit of God. So this answers the question of how did this virgin conception, how did this incarnation of the Lord happen? It was a miracle. It was the Holy Spirit working a miracle to cause the Virgin Mary to conceive and give birth to a son, fully human, joined to the divine nature in the person of the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity. But why did God do such a thing? Why the incarnation? The angel tells Joseph in verse 21, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The angel instructs them to name the child that will be born Jesus. Now this is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. Means savior or Yahweh, our savior. It's not an uncommon name for Jewish children. But the angel tells Joseph that this must be the child's name because he will save his people from their sins. So this child is conceived by the miraculous working of God and he is the promised Emmanuel, God in the flesh. But the promise goes back further than that, doesn't it? Promise goes all the way back to the garden. To Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a serpent-crushing seed of the woman. Adam had been given the commission to tend and to keep the garden, protecting it, keeping it holy. He had been entrusted with the word of God to pass it on to all humanity after him. And he had been given the role as God's vice-regent, a king, if you will, to take dominion over the earth. And he failed in these tasks. The serpent twisted God's word. He brought sin and corruption into the holy garden. He enticed Adam to sin and brought all of humanity into captivity to sin and death. So the promise of a seed who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would come and take dominion over the serpent to crush him, to break his dominion. This is the promise of a savior, of a messiah, who would step into Adam's role and succeed where Adam had failed. This is the promised seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is the promised seed of David who would rule with righteousness and justice forever. This is the promised Passover lamb of God who would serve as a perfect atoning sacrifice for the sins of men. And verse 21 is, is the key verse in this text because it tells us the purpose of salvation of the incarnation. Salvation. It tells us the objects of salvation, his people, and it tells us from what they are saved, their sins. First, it says that he will save his people. Well, who, who are his people? What does it mean to say that he will save his people? Why not simply say that he'll save people? From their sins. Why qualify it by saying he will save his people? Does it mean only the Jewish people? Obviously not. The clear testimony of Scripture is that he is a blessing to all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth. The nations are to be glad in the salvation of God. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, 
Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. What cause for praise would all the peoples have if salvation was for the Jew only? If ethnic Israel were the only ones to know the merciful kindness and the truth of God, why would the nations be glad and rejoice? God's merciful kindness is great towards all people groups. His truth is made known to all. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 3 that the mystery which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that mystery is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Salvation is not limited to one people group. Christ commissioned his church to take the message of the gospel to the entire world. All around the throne in heaven, John sees a vast multitude gathered, he says, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, does this mean that all people will be saved? If that were the case, why specify his people rather than simply all people? Something is meant by saying he will save his people It denotes that they are a people possessed by Christ, that they belong to him. How does a people belong to Christ? By what right do they belong to him? Well, first, by the appointment of the Father. John chapter 10, Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The Father gave a people to Christ to be his people And again, in Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So those who belong to Christ, those who are saved by him, They're his people because they have been given to him by the Father under the terms of what we call the covenant of redemption made before the foundation of the world. Secondly, they are his people by right of ownership. He purchased them with his blood. In him also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. All those who have trusted in Christ have been purchased by his blood to be his people. You are not your own, Paul tells the Corinthians, for you were bought at a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Those who believe are owned by God, purchased by the shed blood of Christ to be a treasured possession, a people for his own glory. For he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We belong to Christ. All those who believe are his people, given to him by the Father before time began and purchased by his blood on Calvary. Christ came to save his people, and not one of those that he came to save will be lost. To believe that Christ died for the sins of a person who is destined not to be saved, a person who would spend eternity being punished for their sins in hell, is to believe that, A, Christ's death did not accomplish its intended purpose. It's to believe that God is punishing sins twice, first in Christ and then in the person who receives the punishment in hell. It's to believe that his precious blood was shed in vain. Such is not the case. Not one drop of the blood of Christ is wasted. Christ came to save his people and he saves them to the utmost, Hebrews tells us. Every one, not one of them is lost. John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and not one who comes to me will I, and, not, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Not one of them is lost. Christ will raise them all up at the last day, for this is the will of the one who sent him. Christ is God with us as our Savior, redeeming his people for himself. But what does he save us from? First, let us note that in saying that he will save his people, it means that his people are in need of saving. Now, let's just admit that. We need help. We need salvation. We're not okay. We're not doing just fine on our own. We need a Savior. We need someone to redeem us, to rescue us. But what from? Does he save us from poverty? Those who preach the prosperity gospel think so. They claim that Christ came to ensure that we would be prosperous, that we would have an abundance of material blessings. If that is the case, why was he born in such a lowly estate? He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't laid in a richly appointed crib. He was born in the common room of an overcrowded family home and laid in a feeding trough. It's a humble beginning. Our English translations, uh, such as Luke chapter 2, verse 7, they say, and, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this makes it sound like they went to town and, and the hotel was crowded and they couldn't get a room, so they had to sleep in the stable. But that's not what's being said here. The Bethlehem is Joseph's ancestral town, and so they went there for the census, and they likely stayed with family. 
The word translated as in there in Luke 2 is, is only used two other times in Scripture, once in Mark and once in Luke, both referring to the same incident, which is near the end of Christ's ministry when he is preparing to celebrate the Passover, the Last Supper with his disciples. Luke 22, and he said to them, to his disciples, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you will say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. So it's a house with a guest room upstairs. And that's the same Greek word that's translated as in in Luke 2, verse 7. In other words, they're likely at the home of one of Joseph's distant relatives who lives in Bethlehem. And the guest room upstairs was probably already occupied. There was no room in it. It's full because other family members have gotten there before them. And the room is full. Probably family members that are maybe uh, of greater social standing, a little more important than them. Because you would think you got a young pregnant woman that shows up, you'd give her a good room. But if she doesn't have the same social standing that others do, such is not the case. And so they don't end up in the guest room. They, they're, they're on the first floor in the common room downstairs. And there's likely a cave or an outdoor uh, stable attached to the home with a stone feeding trough where they would feed the animals. And this becomes a makeshift cradle for the Savior of the world. The beginning of his human life was humble. Luke records that when Joseph and Mary took Christ to the temple in Jerusalem, as the law commanded, that they offered a sacrifice. But they offered not the sacrifice of a lamb, but of two turtle doves and pigeons. This was the sacrifice that the law permitted for those who were poor and couldn't afford a lamb. Throughout his earthly life, Christ worked likely for his father, according to the flesh, Joseph, as a carpenter working-class vocation. And then, during his ministry, did he take up residence in a palace somewhere? No, he, he had no home to call his own, no place to lay his head. He didn't ride a camel or a donkey around like a king. He walked everywhere that he went. He didn't live in the lap of luxury and prosperity. And then, at the end of his life, he died the humiliating death of a common criminal. If Christ came to save his people from prosperity, he didn't do a good job of it. It's not why he came. We can also see in our text that he did not come to deliver us from a life of obedience. Yes, Christ sets us free, but not from obeying God, not to do whatever we want. Consider Joseph. He's betrothed to Mary and then discovers that she's pregnant before they've come together as husband and wife. Now, verse 19 is interesting. It says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. See, Joseph was a just man. He was morally upright. He hated sin. So when Mary was found to be with child out of wedlock, he wasn't willing to just overlook the sin. He was of a mind to divorce her for it. The law permitted this, and he was just in doing this. He wasn't doing it out of 
uh, selfish motives. He cared about the law of God. He cared about sin. He was a just man, morally upright. We can see that he, he wasn't overlooking the sin because he, he was looking to divorce her, but he also wasn't using the law as a means to try and make himself look good by making someone else look bad. And he was going to put her away quietly. Because not only was he just, but he was humble. But the angel of the Lord comes to him and instructs him that he is to take Mary as his wife despite her pregnancy. That would be a pretty hard pill to swallow. You're engaged to this woman. She's pregnant. By the way, the baby, not from some other man, it's from the Holy Spirit. Nobody's going to believe you when you tell them that. Joseph obeys. He obeys the Lord. The Ten Commandments aren't ten suggestions. They're ten commandments. The Lord has instructed us how to live. He is our sovereign Lord and our King. We are to obey Him. Christ did not come to set us free from obedience to God. He came to free us so that we could obey God. Most famously, the Jews at the time thought that the Messiah would come to save them from Roman oppression, from political tyranny. Quite obviously, Christ did not come for that reason. He was born a king in the line of David, but he did not seek to establish an earthly throne. He didn't seek to overthrow Rome. And for that reason, many of the Jews would not accept him as the Messiah. He said his kingdom was not of this world. Matthew makes a point of Jesus' genealogy in the beginning of chapter 1 and pointing out that he's descended from David the king. The throne is his. But then in chapter 2, Matthew speaks of Herod the king. It's clear that Jesus did not come to save us from political leaders or foreign enemies. And this is still a temptation, unfortunately, that uh, Christians today struggle with thinking that part of Jesus' mission in the world is to to free us from political tyranny. There's nothing wrong with Christians being involved in politics, desiring justice and righteousness in the nation. In fact, if we love our neighbors, we should desire those things. We should want to be involved, especially in a, a country like ours where we have the opportunity to do that. But there are Christians around the world today living under tyranny, dictatorship, harsh conditions. Christ does not free them from that when they have faith and become a Christian. We must not begin to to believe that our salvation or to act like our salvation is somehow bound up with who gets elected to office. That's not why Christ came. Quite the opposite, really. In fact, he, he warned us that the world around us, including the governments of the world, would be hostile towards his followers. And whether we like it or not, he often uses that hostility as a means of sanctifying his people. God is God in heaven above. He's enthroned far above all earthly powers. They serve at his will and at his command. Christ did not come to free us from political oppression. Christ came to save us from something far worse than a political tyrant or dictator. He came to save us from our sins. Not from other people's sins, but from our sins. 
It's our sin that separates us from God, our creator. It's our sin that demands his perfect, holy, and righteous justice. It's our sin that condemns us to eternal damnation. It's our sin that brings death, both physical and spiritual. But Jesus, we're told, will save his people from their sins. He will save, not might save, not make it possible for them to be saved and then leave it up to them to finish the work. No, Christ will save his people. He is able, he is willing, and it is for this reason that he was born. He will not fail to accomplish the purpose for which he came. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us as our Savior, delivering us from the bondage of sin and death. Our sin, both the original sin nature that we inherit from Adam, our father, and the sins that we actually commit with our own hands and our hearts. Our sin is treasonous rebellion against our Creator, against a good and holy God. Because He is infinite and eternal and holy, 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 our sins committed against Him, no matter how insignificant they may seem to us, are deserving of infinite and eternal damnation because they are sins against an infinite and eternal God. But because Christ is not just a sinless man, but he is the infinite, divine, eternal Son of God, united to this human nature, his sacrifice on the cross becomes of infinite, eternal value. He saves to the utmost all those that he came to redeem. He had no sin. He did not deserve death. But the sins of all those who would believe were placed on him. And he suffered the death that was due to those sins so that we who believe might be set free from sin and death. We can't believe apart from the grace of God working in our hearts to bring us to repentance. But when that grace is poured into our hearts, renewed by the Spirit of God, where we behold the beauty of Christ and of His finished work for us, how could we not believe? Because we are not God, we, we can't know who will believe and who won't. Only God knows this in the counsel of His divine will. And so we are instructed to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all men without exception, to pray for their salvation, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they might know the truth, that they might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. That's 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 6. This is why Christ came. This is why he was born. This is why the eternal Son of God stepped into time, took to himself a human nature so that he could save his people from their sins. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior. If you have trusted in Christ, then this is a cause for great celebration, is it not? He has redeemed you. He gave himself for you. He shed his blood that he might 
save you from your sins. Praise the Lord. If you have not yet trusted in Christ for salvation, then this is a cause for prayer, for seeking repentance with all your heart, for pleading with God to apply the shed blood of Christ to you that you might be washed clean, redeemed, adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior and King. Let's pray.